0: According to your word. God, we long for your kingdom to extend and your reign to rule over everyone. And yet, God, we come to you this morning recognizing that your rule has not extended to everyone on this earth. And we pray that you would help us to be agents of your kingdom, that we would speak forth your gospel boldly as we have occasion and opportunity. God, we also pray this morning, recognizing that you are not simply a king who rules, but you are also a priest who intercedes. And this morning, Father, we thank you for Jesus, and we ask that you would help us to see Jesus clearly. Help us to understand that Jesus is our advocate before you, our Father, and Jesus is our mediator, in fact, the only mediator between us and the Father that reconciles sinners like us to you. So God, this morning, as we pray that your kingdom reign would be extended, we also pray that your mediatorial role would reach more people. And God, we ask that you would be glorified as we share this gospel with others, and we pray this in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, this morning to Psalm 110, Psalm 110, which James just read for us. And as you're turning there, I want you to think about the f- moment we find ourselves in culturally. Here we are in a midterm election year where politics is a buzz everywhere. And everyone seems to have an opinion and a stake in the outcome of the upcoming elections. What I find ironic in these discussions about politics is so often we say that we hate politics and we hate politicians, and yet we quickly look for a political solution or candidate that will solve all of the problems we perceive in our country or in our culture. We are completely hypocritical in this because on the one hand, we hate politics if it's going against us, but on the other hand, we love politics if it imposes our will on other people. Well, as this psalm that we're about to study this morning, Psalm 110, is presented to us, it is no mere political solution for Israel. In fact, this psalm exalts Christ as the king that will be the coming victor for Israel. Yet this psalm is brought to us through David, who was a leader over Israel, and in some ways you could say was a politician in the things that he did as king of Israel. Yet even David in all of his might and being a man after God's own heart was a human leader who ultimately was finite and fallible. In fact, we can say that David was even deeply disappointing to his people in the ways that he failed them publicly in the sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. And yet, in spite of that, the hearts of Israel and the hearts of people continue to yearn for a solution. And this psalm is going to show us that the solution is not David, but the solution is Christ, the coming victor that's not named in this psalm, but will be named throughout the New Testament. As we look at Psalm 110 this morning, we're going to see that this psalm combines the royal descendants of David, a political class of Israel, and it combines them with the priestly order of Melchizedek, a mysterious figure in the Old Testament, someone who appears to Abraham back in Genesis, and Abraham pays tribute and gives him an offering. Who is this? Well, we'll learn a little more of him today. But what we see brought together in Psalm 110 is that the coming victor that God is going to promise in this psalm is none other than the Messiah. And he will be a -a one-of-a-kind king and priest. And in the New Testament, this person will be identified as Jesus. So today, you'll hear me talk about the coming victor, the Messiah, and Jesus as synonyms because that is what this psalm is talking about. And as the psalmist has written, most believe that this was a psalm of David, though others have argued that this was a psalm written by Nathan. We don't know exactly, but I think it's safe to say David because of how Jesus interpreted this song, psalm in, in the Gospels. But there are some things that I want us to understand from this psalm of how Jesus rules, comforts, and forgives his people. And the first point that I want to examine with you this morning is that the coming victor Jesus rules his rivals. The coming victor Jesus rules over his rivals. In fact, this psalm is broken into two stanzas. And again, when you think of psalms, think of songs. So those words sound very close, but this is a lyrical poem written to be sung by God's people. It would be used in worship to remind people of who God is and what God is doing in his world. And the first stanza of the psalm is the first three verses. And in this stanza, the psalmist makes it clear that the coming victor will rule over his rivals. And how does he do that? Well, this psalm starts right out of the gate in the first stanza by saying, the Lord says to my Lord, This literally means that the oracle of Yahweh to my Lord are God's words to King David. And the text says that the Lord himself is speaking about the coming victor who will be greater than David, who was arguably the best king in the history of Israel. And he will in fact be a greater priest than Melchizedek, who is a priest that stands outside the tribe of Levi and over and above the order of Aaron. As God is speaking here, this song of worship is a song of the words of God. And this verse is remarkably quoted in the New Testament more than any other verse from the Old Testament. In fact, the New Testament quotes this verse directly 11 times and alludes to it 14 times. Jesus applied it to himself. Stephen and Paul applied it to Jesus. And the author of Hebrews drew a straight line to Jesus to this psalm as well. So the words that the Lord is saying to the Lord are words that we need to heed and that we need to hear. And these are words about Jesus' rule over all people, people who are friends and people who are foes. In fact, we see in the first two verses after that introduction that this coming victor will rule his rivals with sovereignty. He will rule his rivals with sovereignty. The Lord says in the second part of verse number one, set at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool in your feet. What he's saying here is that Yahweh is inviting the Davidic king to set at his right hand, which is a position of authority until he defeats his enemies for him. Yahweh is not only going to promise victory, but he also assures that the king's enemies will be humiliated before him. How will they be humiliated? Well, that's verse number two, where it says, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. He's going to extend this rule, making the enemies a footstool before him lowering them to the lowest position, that they would simply be at the feet of the ruler. And yet the source of this king's power, this coming one's authority, is not gonna be sourced merely in the king, but it will be sourced in Yahweh, who is where the king's power comes from. Yahweh will extend the king's royal scepter from Zion to rule over his enemies throughout Canaan, and this is all based on God's promises to give his king dominion over all people, both allies and enemies, indicating that this king has sovereign authority and power. This is an incredible statement, that from the small land of promise there in Palestine, what became the nation of Israel, that God would rule over everyone, subduing his enemies while also protecting his followers. This statement was so significant that Jesus, when he argued with the Pharisees, referred to this psalm about his own sovereignty. He challenged the Pharisees in their understanding of the Messiah by asking, whose son is the Messiah? And they answered him, the son of David. So then Jesus quoted this section of Psalm 110 as a referent to himself, and he said this in Matthew 22. He said, Jesus said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, set up my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus asserted his sovereignty by aligning himself with this promise in the Davidic Psalm, Psalm 110, which is actually a messianic psalm pointing to Jesus. Jesus silenced the Pharisees by asserting his sovereignty as the king of kings, He even says in this section of Matthew that David recognized that the Messiah would be the Lord. Therefore, Jesus is telling the Pharisees that he has sovereign authority over everyone and that he is superior to all human rulers. This begs the question that we must ask ourselves as we consider this psalm, that as we hear the oracle of God to announcing this coming victorious king, the question is, have we submitted our lives to his sovereignty as well? Who or what exercises the most authority over our lives and how does Jesus specifically affect the way that you live? Think about this as we think about sovereignty. It may seem like an obtuse subject for a Sunday morning. It may seem like something that rolls off the tongue in Sunday school class, but has very little to do with our actual day-to-day lives until you think about what exercises authority over your life. Perhaps it's your job. It's an all-consuming responsibility. You work for a busy company that makes millions, if not billions of dollars, and the expectations for your output seem impossible sometimes. And even when you're off work hours, you're thinking about your work. You have emails that keep flooding in, and you're wondering, how am I going to answer them all? You have a report that you have to give the next day, and you're completely owned by your work. Others may be less inclined to be owned by their work, and they may be owned by their family. They may have such demands that they also seem impossible. School is about to start, and that's why the youth group went away for the back-to-school retreat. I know in Cherokee County, where I live, the kids start school tomorrow. Next week, the kids in Fulton County start. And all around metro Atlanta, students are going back to school, and our schedules are about to go berserk. If it wasn't busy enough this summer with traveling and things that you may choose to do for vacation or special activities, all the demands that will be placed on you starting tomorrow or starting next Monday are going to control you or could possibly control you because you see your day, you already know. It's going to start at the ungodly hours of 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning. And from there, it's going to roll from one thing to the next until by midnight, you collapse in the bed after you've shuttled your kid home from the last activity and helped them with their homework, gotten them ready for bed, and then hopefully in the bed. The point of sharing all of that is to say, sovereignty may seem like something that is out there that we don't fully understand, but we all live according to some master. Some of us are mastered by our work, others are mastered by our families and the demanding schedules they are, and others of us are mastered by other things. The point that this psalm is making is that we should be mastered by Jesus. That at the end of the day, though we can live full, even busy lives, and though we can live productive and enjoyable careers, we should be doing all of it under the scepter of Christ that we would be following him above all. Well, as we do that, we recognize that the coming victor rules over his rivals. That means he rules over rival people. He rules over rival interests. But we also see in this first stanza of this hymn of praise that Jesus will rule over his rivals with righteousness. He will rule over them with righteousness. So on the one hand, he rules with power. And on the other hand, he rules with holiness. Look at verse number 3. He says, "Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb." Again, this is a poem that has figurative and poetic language that is sometimes hard for us to understand, and we may see phrases in there such as "the morning's womb" and say, "What is this talking about?" and get sidetracked from the primary point. But what this oracle is saying is that the coming victor will muster his troops for a day of battle against his enemies, and they will gladly respond. He'll say, it's time to go to war, and they will come to him, and the coming victor's troops will be clothed in the holy splendor of their king. In other words, the king will regale his people in his righteousness, this Holy splendor is really talking about the otherness or the righteousness that the king has. And we know from the testimony of David that he was a sinner who said, woe is me. But this is not talking about King David. This is talking about the coming victorious king, Jesus, who will offer his righteousness to his people. And that means those who believe in Jesus will wear garments from their king And those will be garments of holiness. Jesus Christ, who is the victor king, offers his righteousness to all sinners who would repent of their sin and believe him. And all of us need the righteousness of Christ because none of us has any righteousness of our own. We're sinners by our nature and we're sinners by choice. And we cannot make ourselves righteous no matter how much we may try. And we cannot place ourselves in a right standing with God, no matter what we may do. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. In other words, the only way for us to experience the holy splendor is for us to be found in Christ And Paul further elaborates on this in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, the coming victor is going to rule his rivals in sovereign power and also in his holy righteousness. Jesus' sovereignty and his righteousness demand that we respond to them they're not simply theological concepts that we file into a filing cabinet of our mind, but they are theological truths that we must live according to. None of us can be neutral about Jesus. None of us can say, "eh," and sort of shrug our shoulders because Christians and non-Christians alike are all accountable to God. Notice it said that he will put his enemies below his feet, that they will be as a footstool to him. So Jesus will deal with his enemies, but he will also deal with his own people. Christians will give an account for their lives on the basis of Christ's righteousness and the forgiveness that he offers in the gospel. They will be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, but non-Christians will give an account on the basis of their sinfulness. And they will be clothed, Isaiah says, in filthy garments. You see, if someone is wearing a white outfit, and I should have worn my white trousers today. I wore them last Sunday. But if you're wearing something white, whether it's trousers or shorts or a shirt or a dress or whatever, it is so easy to spot when you get something on it. In fact, most of us are extremely paranoid when we're eating out wearing something white, that that's gonna be the one time we get ketchup or mustard on ourselves. And it only takes a tiny spot of ketchup or mustard and you think everybody that you meet that day is looking right at it. Like they don't see how amazing your outfit is, they see how blemished it is in that spot. And that's the problem we have with sin. No matter how good we may present our lives, no matter how nice we may be, no matter how much we may do on behalf of God, if we've not submitted our sinfulness to him by repenting and asking his forgiveness, even the smallest blemish, the smallest spot will be what gets all the attention because outside of Christ, we are without hope. Outside of Christ, we cannot have forgiveness. We cannot be made right with God. So this song of praise demands a response. It demands that we respond to God's sovereign rule through the coming victor, and it demands that we respond to him by asking for forgiveness so that we can have his righteousness. This psalm also goes on, though, from here. I mentioned it has two stanzas, and that's the first stanza, or in the first three verses, and the second stanza is in verses four through seven. And in this section, the psalmist makes a move to show that Jesus is not only going to be the king, but the second point this morning that I want you to see is that the coming victor Jesus will comfort his followers. The coming victor Jesus will comfort his followers in verses four to seven. So the first half of the psalm shows his authority and his righteousness. And in the second half of the psalm, we will see that he is a priest that endures forever one who intercedes for his people in fact verse number 4 begins the second stanza of the psalm with another promise he says here the lord has sworn and will not change his mind this is not the lord using foul language or swearing in his own name but this is him making a covenant oath and promise this is the him underscoring That Jesus will be the fulfillment of all of his covenant promises. That the oath that he made with Israel is an irrevocable oath. And in spite of his people's unfaithfulness and their sins against God, including their evil desire for a king, God's covenant promises will continue. And his promises will show that grace overcomes our sin. I mentioned in my introduction that most of us hate politics and yet we talk out both sides of our mouths because we want a political solution. Well, in Israel, they also hated politics and yet they found themselves longing for politics. When they were under the rule of the Egyptians as slaves, what was one of their complaints? Their complaints were, the Egyptians are crushing us. We can't live under these conditions. And every time they complained, what did the pharaohs do? They made their burdens heavier and harder for them to complete. And yet, no sooner than they had left Egypt and been liberated, given their freedom, and en route to the land that God had promised them, what did they do? They said, oh, if we could just be back in Egypt where we had good food to eat and our schedules were predictable and we knew what was happening next... They wanted a political solution to the very politics they had been liberated by going back into that political mess. And if that weren't enough, they repeated that cycle once they entered into Canaan. God had told them, don't get a king like the pagan nations around you because I alone will be your king. And God established Israel as a theocracy. And yet, what did they do? No sooner than they had been in the land— and they had not completely obeyed God's commands to drive out the Canaanites, one of the things they did is they said, we need a politician to lead us. God, would you give us a king? And God in his grace condescended and gave them Saul. And Saul stood head and shoulders above all the other people of Israel. He looked the part of a king. And yet God warned them that this would not turn out as they had hoped And in fact, it did not turn out the way they had hoped because Saul proved to not be the kind of king that Israel had hoped for. And then along comes David, God's next anointed one, and God in his grace used David to strengthen the nation of Israel and to reemphasize his covenant love and promises. But even David failed, both God and the people of Israel. Yet God's grace overcomes our sin, and it's evident over and over again through the King of Jesus. I put in your worship guide a quote from John Piper's book, Providence. John Piper has written a lot of books over the years, but this is the one, if you could only read one, that I would commend to you. It's no small book, just a a warning, it's about 900 pages, and you may say, Whoa, that's a deal breaker right there. I'm not gonna touch that book. But let me encourage you, for your devotional reading, it is accessible in the way he wrote it. It's very scriptural in that he draws you to scripture over and over again. And it's very pastoral because it's very practical. And it is something incredibly encouraging to show God's providence through the arc of scripture. But notice in your worship guide, the quote that I put here. With Piper commenting on the kings. He said, The grace of affirming a monarch conceived in sin signals that every blessing that comes from this kingship is undeserved. Every blessing that flows from this kingship is grace. It is a standing witness to the grace of God who planned the kingship as a source of literally endless blessing. And all this gracious blessing will rest on this foundation. God is committed to uphold the glory of his name. God is committed to uphold the glory of his name. That's exactly what we see God doing in spite of the human failure and the human heart and its desire for solutions apart from God, that God defends his glory by bringing grace to our sin. That's why the psalmist says here in verse number four that the Lord has sworn and that he will not change his mind. He's not gonna back down and say, that's it, you've gone too far this time, you're an absolute moron, you're worthless, and I'm tired of you. So I'm moving on to someone else. God has not chosen to do that because God is faithful to keep his promises no matter how faithless and faltering we may be. The coming victor, Jesus, comforts his followers. Once we have received the righteousness of Christ, there is now, therefore, no more condemnation for us. And he comforts his followers how? It says in verse number four that he comforts his followers through his priesthood, through his priesthood. Look at verse number four. It says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, David was no priest David was a king out of Judah where all the kings of Israel had come from and David was not from Melchizedek. Instead, this priest who would be forever out of the order of Melchizedek is clearly anticipating a coming king, a coming priest, one who would later be called Jesus. One of the ways that Yahweh overcomes our sin involves the fact that Jesus is a king and a priest. And Yahweh would be establishing this coming victor, that he will be sovereign and righteous as a king, but now the psalmist is declaring that this coming victor will be an eternal priest, an intercessor, someone who mediates between God and people. In ancient Israel, the kings always came from the tribe of Judah, and the priests came from the tribe of Levi. There was no single person that could qualify as both a king and a priest because you were either from one tribe or from the other. Yet Yahweh says the coming victor will transcend Judah. He will be the Lord over David. He also says the coming victor will transcend Levi because he will come from the order of Melchizedek. This means that Jesus' priesthood will come from another line. The king and priest of Salem Melchizedek. We know this because the author of Hebrews makes it clear to us. He referenced Psalm 110 to describe Jesus as a priest better than any priest from Aaron who was a Levite. And the way Hebrews interprets Psalm 110 points exclusively to Jesus. He's the future king and priest who transcends Judah and Levi. And he does this through Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a mysterious figure that appears in Genesis 14. We don't know everything about him, but we know he was the king of Salem, which most believe to be Jerusalem. And Abraham honored him and brought a tithe and an offering to him. And he was identified as a true worshiper of God. And Abraham recognized that and even submitted to Melchizedek. This was a forerunner of Christ. Melchizedek was not Christ himself, but one who points us to Christ, the greater Melchizedek, the greater David, and the greater Aaron. Jesus, like Melchizedek, is a king of righteousness and peace. And he is a priest unlike any other priest. He intercedes for his people as their priest, and he is the sacrifice for their sins. In other words, Jesus sacrificed himself for the sins of of his people. As we think about Jesus being from the order of Melchizedek, you might scratch your head and say, that's a word I can't say. I don't understand. Well, let me encourage you, get a study Bible this afternoon and do some more reading on Melchizedek. The point of all of this is Jesus is a priest that deserves our worship and our tribute Just as Abraham had come to Melchizedek and brought him an offering and worshiped, Jesus demands that we bring our lives to him and lay them down as living sacrifices, Paul says, and we worship him. So again, the question that this psalm raises as a psalm of praise and worship is, who are we worshiping? Are we worshiping Christ as our mediator, or do we have another mediator, another priest. And again, you might think, priests, temples, worship, sacrifices, that's kind of obtuse, and I don't get it. Well, let me make it very 21st century for you. Some of us worship at the feet of a matriarch or a patriarch, and we do whatever they say. They may say, this year, Christmas is at our house. Drop everything. We expect the kids, the grandkids, and the great-grandkids to be at our house, And we go, okay, we'll do that. We don't want to do that. It's going to be inconvenient. We're going to complain about it, but we'll find a way because that is the person that we look to as a mediator who connects all of these people together that may otherwise go their other ways. And this psalm is calling us to come to Christ who is the mediator that brings us to Jesus. He is the one who brings together people from all tribes, tongues, and nations and makes us one people. We who were not a people, he says, are now a people because Jesus is the ultimate patriarch. He is the priest that intercedes and gives himself for us. Again, we could turn to Hebrews to illustrate this and I'll just read one section for you from Hebrews chapter four. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess for we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus is the priest who comforts his people. He doesn't come to condemn, but to bring comfort and forgiveness, and he connects us together with one another. Well, this psalm, the second stanza, shows us that Jesus comforts his people with Jesus' priesthood, it also shows us that he comforts his people with God's justice. He comforts his people with God's justice. Look at verse number five. The Lord is at your right hand and he will crush kings on the day of his wrath. In verse number one, the king was invited to sit at Yahweh's right hand and now Yahweh is at the king's right hand. Because Yahweh will establish his promised king-priest, and then Yahweh is ready to defeat their common enemies, and those common enemies will face the wrath of God. It says the wrath of God is prepared for all who oppose him, and he will judge all nations. That's what it means when he says he will crush the kings on the day of his wrath. And then verse number six, he will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. This is not describing gratuitous violence, but this is God's justice against all of his wicked enemies. There are none who will stand and shake their fist at God in defiance because God will crush them, he says here. He will destroy them completely. Yahweh's just rule will be established through the coming victor, Jesus, and it will be far reaching in its effects. That's why I prayed this morning for the expansion of God's kingdom and Christ's rule. There is no one apart from Jesus Christ, the promised king priest, who will be able to avoid divine justice. In our society, people may say, it's okay if you believe in Jesus, but that's not okay for me. I was raised in a different religion. I'm from a different country with a different set of values. Or they may say, I'm just agnostic about all of it. It's so confusing. This does not allow for any of those categories. It simply says, any who are opposed to the king, priest, Jesus, will be destroyed and be driven off the face of the earth. That is a sobering message. Not one that we banty about to say, we are going to crush you but one to say you can avoid the wrath of God. You can receive the forgiveness of Christ. Paul says it this way in Romans 2. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done. You see, apart from the forgiving work of Jesus and his robes of righteousness, God will repay us for what we have done. And remember, the single spot of mustard or ketchup on the white piece of clothes that everybody notices, that single spot is enough to deserve the eternal judgment of God. Proverbs, excuse me, Proverbs says this about that as well. He says, wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers us from death. The point of Proverbs there, this is Proverbs eleven four, is to say we can't buy our way out of God's judgment. We can't buy our way into comfort and eternal security. Instead, the only way is through the righteousness that comes from another And delivers us from death. So the question here is Have you accepted Jesus as your priest? And are you depending on his divine justice through the atoning work of Christ? The coming victor, priest King Jesus, will defeat his enemies, and Yahweh will refresh Jesus along the way and exalt him to the highest place of honor. The last verse, verse number seven says, he will drink from a brook along the way and so he will lift up his head. This is a reminder that the work at hand is difficult and fraught with challenges and opposition from those who oppose God. But it is also a promise that God will refresh his king priest, Jesus, and he will be exalted above all other people. Paul said in Philippians, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. But he did that after he had been humiliated to the point of death on a cross. As king, Jesus will rule over all the world. And as priest, he will perfectly connect people with God. And as the people of God appropriate or apply Psalm 110 to our own lives and make it our own song, It prompts us to cry out, come, Lord Jesus. This blessed hope sustains us when so much of the world around us is going wrong. I started by saying many people hate politics but look for a political solution. I want to end by reminding you the solution to your life's problems are found only in Jesus. So we can cling to Jesus because the last point that I have this morning is that the coming victor Jesus takes away our sin. The coming victor Jesus takes away our sin. Hear this from Hebrews 9. Just as people were destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed, once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So my question is, who are you looking for For your deliverance. Who is the king of your life? And who is the priest in your life? There are rival kings demanding loyalty to them. And I've highlighted just a couple of them. There are rival priests demanding that you do their bidding. And yet there is only one king priest worthy of our affection and worthy of giving our lives to. And that king priest is Jesus. I'll conclude with The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 10, his words beginning in verse number 11 say, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when the priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. May Psalm 110 be your song of praise as you submit to the kingship of Christ and as you find comfort in the mediation or the priesthood of Christ, and may you know his forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you this morning to bring your word into our lives. I ask you would help us to look at this psalm not as some abstract lesson in history or theology, but help us to see it as a personal song of praise of our lives. Help us, God, to be the kind of people that have recognized your authority and submitted to it. Help us to call you our king and forgive us for the many times and ways that we allow other things to rule over us. God, I also pray that you would help us to be the kind of people that accept you as our priest, that we would come to you in your righteousness, admitting our sinfulness and asking for the forgiveness that you provide in Jesus. Again, God, we ask that you would forgive us for the many ways we use other people to try to make atonement for our wrongs. We try to treat loved ones nice around the holidays because we know we've not been nice at other times of the year. There are other things we do, but God, I pray that you would to find all we need in Christ. And God, most of all, I pray that we would be robed in his righteousness through the gospel that we believe. And if there are any here today that do not know this gospel, I ask that you would draw them to yourself through the repentance of their sin and through faith in Christ alone. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.